individuals cannot exist alone. No, no species has ever existed that is more dependent on other members of its species than humans. We're pathetic. We can't survive. The baby can't survive without parents. I mean, I great, get great joy from writing books, but that's a, a social activity. That's a cultural activity because I do not write books just for myself. I am a leading reason why I write books, but yes, I want other people to read them and to talk to me and be part of a dialogue. And this is, this is an example of the fact that we are not islands, that we, we really do, we are little nodes in a vast network of other individuals. Welcome to the story of language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders and I am an English teacher, and throughout this series I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode we discuss the content of Dan's book, Dark Matter of the Mind which lays out Dan's theory of culture. The book contains bold statements such as brains do not learn and science is not pure rational thought. But after this conversation, you might change your mind about the raw power of viewing the world from the perspective of dark matter. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode 11 of The Story of Language. You know, what, what business does a linguist have writing about anthropology and, and philosophy? Well, I don't like these boundaries. I mean, I don't like disciplinary boundaries. I read everything that interests me and I explore things that interest me. I consider myself an anthropologist. I've published in the number one journal of anthropology. I've published in one of the number one journals of archeology span and I've published in journals of psychology and journals of linguistics. And I consider your professional output to be closer to describing you rather than your PhD, which I got almost 40 years ago. It's 37 years ago that I got that PhD and I've done a lot of other stuff. The other thing too is when you are doing field research, you cannot simply focus on one little thing. You've, you're confronted by an entire language, an entire culture, a way of life, interactions. It's, it's incredibly complex and you can't be a field worker without reading everything you can possibly put into your head. On my PhD committee, if we want to go back that far, it was written in Brazil. One of the members of my committee, in fact, somebody I shared an office with for a long time was, he just died last year, was Brazil's number one philosopher. I also shared my office while I was writing my PhD with philosopher John Searle. And we got to be very good friends. And uh, we talked all the time about philosophy and language. Chomsky's not a philosopher, but he writes books on philosophy and people read it. Read it. He's not a politician or a political scientist. And he's always writing on politics. I mean, you can, you can say that, um, that your writing stands alone. You, you, you either 
it either stands up to professional scrutiny by specialists or it doesn't. So when I wrote How Language Began, and I'm talking about archaeology, and I'm showing how you should interpret these stone tools and stuff, I'm thinking, I never worked on a stone tool in my whole life, but this seems to be right. And then I get a letter from an archaeologist saying, I'm absolutely convinced that you're right. And, and I've all of these arguments, and he's a very important archaeologist. So, you know, for some people, there are strict boundaries between, you know, uh, anthropology and linguistics. And, and in fact, in the book, in Dark Matter, you, you call it the reification of linguistics. So for Edward Sapir, who is, if I have a hero, that's him. For Edward Sapir, linguistics and psychology were sub-branches of anthropology. And um, you could not study either one without the study of anthropology and without sensitivity to culture, nor could you study them without uh, cross-fertilization between linguistics and psychology. Uh, Sapir was trained as an anthropologist by Boaz, but in those days, linguistics was just a field of anthropology. It was just a subfield of anthropology. So to be a linguist was by definition to be an anthropologist. My son is chair of an anthropology department at the University of Miami. It is the traditional four subdiscipline anthropology department. So anthropology is biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, linguistics, and archeology. span That's anthropology to many people. Chomsky changed linguistics so much that it basically took it out of anthro departments. I actually am now not so much in favor of linguistics departments or the Linguistic Society of America or any of that stuff because I think that it has reified linguistics to the point that linguists have an identity crisis if you tell them that the grammar could be influenced by the culture. The, this whole last 50 years of linguistics has been that Grammar is, is a mutation in the brain that is only possessed by our species for just a few, you know, few tens of thousands of years, and uh, it has nothing to do with culture. In fact, it is responsible for building culture, so you're getting the cart before the horse. I would never say that grammar builds culture, nor would I say that culture builds grammar, but they're in a symbiotic relationship. You can't, they, they both rely on the other to to sort of bootstrap up. So you couldn't have had a language appearing without a culture. So one of the reasons the archeological record is so important is that you see that Homo erectus had a culture, a very developed culture. There was an article a few years ago, which I somehow just read today about this uh, 750 to 800,000 year old site in modern day Israel, uh, which I do mention a lot in the book, this site, Gesher Benat Yaakov, which is a settlement of Homo erectus long before Neanderthals existed, a couple hundred thousand years before Neanderthals, and about 500,000 years before Sapiens. They had a, a settlement, nobody wants to call it a village because that would be attributing, that's a term that we use only for Homo sapiens, but it's a village, it's a settlement in which they had one part of it was used for plant processing, one part for animal processing, one part for a social space. They had fire, they had completely domesticated fire. That's about, you know, almost more than 800,000 years ago, but this is real good evidence that at least by 800,000 years ago. So they had culture. And so once they have culture, you know that that's built partially by language and that naturally builds language. So if you can show that they have culture, then even if you didn't have any other arguments, which I give a lot of, you know they had language. There's something in the, in, in the first part of the book which 
I think is probably quite controversial for a lot of people, um, probably both academics and, and non-academics alike, which is, which is this, I'm going to read it, which is, minds don't learn, brains do not learn, societies do not learn, cultures do not learn, only individuals learn. Failure to take this theorization into account has been one of the greatest shortcomings of the cognitive sciences. Um, because, I mean, I'm sure that most people, the, the, the mind, the brain learns. How, how can anything else learn, right? The mind is like talking about the soul, you know. Uh, our souls learn, our minds learn. Those mean just exactly the same, which is nothing. We, our mind is built into our body. It's getting, it's getting nutrients from our body. You, you get sick and your mind doesn't work as well. Your brain doesn't work as well. So we're talking about an organ of the body, just like we're talking about a hand or a liver or a lung or a foot. Uh, we're just talking about, or the skin. These are just parts of the body. And so the skin doesn't hit somebody. The whole individual hits somebody. You know, the, uh, the foot doesn't run. The individual runs and the brain doesn't learn, the individual learns. So like if I'm trying to explain to you how to do the combination on, on some lock, I probably will have to actually have my password. Let's use that. That's, I'm always trying to remember my password. And the only way I can remember it, because I use different passwords for everything and they're all long, long Pitaha words with lots of numbers arbitrarily stuck in there. So nobody's ever going to break my passwords like anybody would care. So I have to type it for a while before I can get it. I remember getting to a hotel in, um, in Slovakia. And for some reason, I guess because of Alzheimer's or something, I, I had the wrong finger scheme in my brain and I was typing the wrong sequence and I wasn't getting into my computer. So I got on my phone and I called my secretary who, because I was the dean then, and I had a secretary and administrative assistant. And I said, what's my password for my computer? And she said, like, I know, you know, <laughs> how do I know? I said, I thought you knew everything. You know, this is really disappointing to me. <laughs> so I had to, but finally, finally I got it. I got it, you know, and, and I was back in my computer and I thought, how was it possible? But I was just doing a slightly different sequence, which was maybe an old password or something like that. So that just shows that my fingers are part of my reasoning process. And when I'm trying to teach somebody how to play the guitar, I can't always say, do this, you put your finger here on this note. I sometimes I have to play it and then tell them because it's part of my memory is in my muscles. And, and I learned tactically. So the brain is, is part of this marvelous body. A culture is an abstraction across what everybody knows. Okay, so why do you and I share a language in common? It's not because the language is out there. It's not related to us. It is because we share the common experience of hearing the same words, in your case, mispronounced. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, we, and we grow up with this. And so we think, okay, we speak a language in common. And as we do, but the knowledge is not out there in the world outside of us. It's in individuals. And if you don't find those individuals, you know, good luck. You've got to find the individuals that share that knowledge. Actually, I don't think that knowledge is shared either. We each, we have overlapping knowledge. You know, your understanding of a word 
take the color puchsia, which I, I can't, I have no idea what that refers to, but I know it's a word. And uh, my understanding of that, even if you told me what it was, would be different than somebody else's because I don't pay attention to colors, you know. You know, my wife went away um, on vacation and she came back and she said, all the plants are dead. I said, what plants? <laughs> I didn't even know we had plants and they're all over the house and they're all dead. And I don't, I don't notice this stuff. She said, she said, you're autistic. And I said, we all are, you know, so. <laughs> well, there's, there's another great example in the book, which, which, I, which I was really able to, to relate to, which is how do you describe the knowledge of riding a bike? Like, what is it exactly that you know? There's limits, right, to what language can do in terms of, well, limit, limits to what the brain can do in terms of, of, of knowing and transferring knowledge because you can't really explain how to ride a bike, right? You have to sort of do it. Yeah, you know, when I learned to ride a bike and probably when you learned to ride a bike, we were sitting on top shaking, hoping the person with us wouldn't let go and they were telling us what to do and then they let us go and we fell on our ass or on our face or on our elbows or whatever and just have to keep doing it. So the instructions are moderately helpful. It's like like picking up a book of Spanish grammar. You know, that'll give you a lot of insights. I memorize verb conjugations and stuff, but that didn't teach me Spanish or Portuguese. You have to get out there and, and practice with people. And you can tell somebody in a book what it means more or less to speak Spanish. But to speak Spanish fluently like a native, there's no book that tells you that. You can't, you can't grasp that except by practicing any, any languages like that. So language is a wonderful example of something that requires the entire individual. How do you use your hands? When I'm talking to you right now, I can't talk without using my hands. I communicate with my entire body, not with my mouth and not with my brain, but with my entire body. You know, the idea that, that we're able to make explicit everything we know is a myth. We can't do that. There's just too much that we know that we don't even know that we know. So some things are, are not expressed. And if you think about it long enough, you can explain it to somebody, you know. So why do you like uh, the movie Sideways, which is probably my favorite movie? Well, I never, I know that I like it, but what is it about it that I like? But I could tell you, I could give you reasons. But if you ask me, how do you write one book really well and another book not so well, I have no explanation to offer you. Sometimes I'm on a roll and sometimes I'm not, you know, like I'll stand up to give a lecture that I've given more than once. And sometimes the audience is just right there with me and they're, they love it. And another time you'll see comments on YouTube, like this was really not a very good lecture. You know I mean, so you don't know what, uh, what was going on. You know, I mean, there's the other thing that you can't please everybody because so to me, the question, and I take this from Sapir, although I never put it like this is not what is in your brain. But what environment is your brain in? You know, how did this human organ get exposed? So it's not like, um, it's important to understand the functioning of the liver. But it's also important to realize that if you put uh, a fifth of whiskey through it every day, it's going to give out. You're going to be dead. So the environment is really important to the functioning of your organs. And the brain has to be put in an in a healthy physical environment, a healthy intellectual environment, um, or it's going to have problems. And we, these are called psychological problems, but they're body problems. They're individual problems. 
I don't think that brains vary as much as people like to think, you know, so what does it mean to be talented? You know, so I play the guitar, I think really, really well. And you can see evidence on YouTube and disagree or agree. The Pitaha don't give a rip. I play the guitar and I play the guitar and they say, uh, yeah, can we have some of that meat you have over there? You know, they just don't pay any attention to it at all because it's not something they value. So how could that be a talent? Societies determine what's important for them. And by society, I mean lots of individuals. And, and then what we all agree on, that's a talent. You know, so physics is not a talent for the Pitaha, but, but arrow making is and hunting is. Hunting, we can sort of recognize as a talent, but most of us couldn't give a rip if we don't have that talent. We don't know if we have it or not because we've never been hunting. No, I've never um, been hunting personally. Um, uh, in fact, I think j just because of um, you know where I was born, you know, I was born in a kind of in in a city, and um, my mum is a very emotionally sensitive person, so I, I feel like I'm probably incapable of actually killing an animal like myself, you know. Yeah, but you know, so like I grew up where. Um... My grandma would walk out on Sunday afternoon and pick two of her chickens up by the head and tear their heads off. And, and then I would pluck them. So killing animals was, I mean, that's how you eat, you know? I mean, we would, my dad would walk into, walk towards the house with his arm around the cow and he'd be talking to it real soft and petting it. And then he pulled out his pistol and shot it through the ear. That was a very humane way of killing it because the cow was never afraid. He never got his in and it was instant death, instant because my dad knew what he was doing. I know enough about hunting and I've been hunting enough to know that I have no talent for it whatsoever. I'm told I shoot at everything. I don't care who's around. You know, I almost shoot, I almost, I was hunting since I was 10 years old with a shotgun and almost shot everybody in front of me. So they stopped letting me go. So I know I'm not very good at it, but, but this has to do with, you acquire these skills as a combination of individual genetic makeup and, and your and then your individual life experiences. So it doesn't really help us to talk about the brain unless we're like a, 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 a medical researcher and we're trying to figure out, or a neuroscientist, you know, sure, they talk about the brain all the time and they do experiments. And so it's Evelina Fedorenko's work is so exciting because she shows in the brain where language is stored. But that isn't the thing I wanna know about language. I mean, I like to know that. I mean, certainly I do wanna know that, but, but I'm more concerned about how is it that we put this knowledge to use and how do we acquire it as members of cultures? Um, and I think one of the problems with psychology uh, today is that we believe that if we define a little experiment and run that and publish a five page paper on the results, we understand the phenomenon or we have, that's five pages of truth. It might be. But it might just be, you know, continuing down the same garden path where we're, it's, it's confirmation bias. And the only way we can understand our own work is to have this overarching concept of human beings, which I try to develop in Dark Matter of the Mind, in which you can see how does this knowledge emerge from all of these other factors? And would we expect it to vary uh, across cultures? Could there be things about language that vary much to our surprise across cultures and if so what what accounts for that well i mean this actually um is, is another kind of i think controversial concept that you talk about in the book which is that um science is not pure rational truth 
but it, but what we consider science is actually just another product of culture. Exactly. I mean, I agree with myself, but uh, <laughs> but the, the the thing there is that truth with a capital T has taken the place of God for many scientists. So scientists would like to think of themselves as wearing white lab coats, sort of like priests. They're the new high priests of knowledge. And I don't want to demean science. I want to be a scientist. I hope that my work is respected and appreciated by other scientists. Uh, but you see in the political debate over COVID that people think science no government can be guided by science alone because it has no guidance to offer on major decisions that affect entire populations. You know, science has no answer for the question at what point does the death of old people outweigh the livelihoods of young people? You know, I'm 69. If, if they tell me, look, we're going to open everything back up and, you know, you can take your chances. Well, that's what I'll do. Uh, but that's not a scientific, that doesn't go against science and it doesn't go in favor of science. That is a, a scientifically aware and informed decision. And sometimes science can say, you shouldn't do this. And the polit politics may say, you know, I got to, I have no choice. Um, and that's not irrational. So when we look at culture, we realize that science is just a cog in the wheel of culture. And even more than that, scientific labs establish their own cultures, what they're interested in, what they're going to find. And sometimes these produce the wrong results. So we see this all the time. So we see fads in science. We don't like to think that science is governed by fads. But I think that for the fast, past 50 years, we've been governed by a fad, uh, a long-lasting fad in linguistics. And I think it's starting to disintegrate. And, and I think that... Um, that a lot of the stuff it's discovered is valid and will continue valid, but for other reasons. It, it just won't be fitted into this particular theoretical worldview uh, again. But I could be wrong. Maybe I'm the one who's got the wrong view. The point is not that I can pinpoint which views are right or wrong. I would make a lot of money if I could do that, I suppose. The, the point is just realizing that there are forces beyond pure rationality because we are individuals embedded in a culture and a lot of our choices are governed by this dark matter, these things acquired that we don't know that we know, and we don't even know that these are pressuring our choices. You know, why is it that in the American West, when we were slaughtering Indians with much alacrity and pleasure, uh, Native Americans, they weren't actually Indians, that was Columbus's problem, but if you look at the battles, American soldiers were just have always been ready to run right in and get destroyed. I mean, that's what happened in World War One. You know, I just cannot believe that you would have battles where a million guys would be slaughtered in one day. Oh, whoops, bad day. You know, but the, but the Native Americans, they wouldn't do that. If, if one person was killed in the 10,000 people who were fighting, it was not a good day. You know, they weren't prepared to accept casualties. They did accept casualties because they, they valued protecting their families more than their personal lives. But if, if, if Crazy Horse had told the Sioux to go charging up against a Gatling gun, they would have said, you know, screw you. We got other things to do. I got some corn to harvest. And But you tell an American soldier, run up against that Gatling gun. My uncle was a flamethrower at, at the beach in Peleliu and Okinawa, landing with the 1st Marine Division, the toughest, toughest beach landings in the history of World War II, greater than Normandy. And uh, his job as a 17-year-old boy was to run up with his back full of flammable gas 
and burn to death Japanese guys in um, in their machine gun nests. And they were shooting at him the whole time. He got his lip shot off. He got shot in the knee. He got, uh, you know, carried from the field, bleeding from the ears and the mouth. Why would they do that? That's his big reflection when he got back from the war. And I talked to him about it. He said, if, if they only allowed men of 40 years and older to be in the army, there would be no wars because they know better than that. So, so the culture prepares people to do this. It's not all cultures prepare people to just run into the, run into a meat grinder and be t- destroyed. Why do we do this? We call it bravery. We call it talent. We pretty much irrational, but the culture controls it. Well, I mean, that, that's another one of the kind of core arguments in the book, which again, I think maybe is, is a kind of controversial thing, maybe for both academics and, and non-academics, which is that if you, if you take an individual and you strip away culture, then there's nothing left. Whereas, you know, I think most people's expectation is that there's still something, we're still human beings, we're all the same, you know, the psychic unity of, of man. Yeah, I mean, we are all the same uh, exterior, you know, we have two hands and you expect everybody to have two hands uh, if they're healthy and five fingers and five toes and, you know, on each foot, not just, you know, five toes on one foot and not the other foot. So you expect this sort of uniformity. You expect the brain of all humans to be capable of learning the same complexity of material, the same volume of material. But you take out culture and there's nothing left. There's just the thing that can eat and, you know, has biological functions. There's really nothing left without culture. So you you take the most intelligent baby that's ever been born and you put them in the middle of the jungle and hope they survive. They will learn some things, but... Uh, chances are they're not going to survive because we can't survive without culture. When you see evidence of Homo erectus on the island of Flores, you know that they had to have crossed in a vessel because one person grabbing a ride on a log isn't going to start a population, isn't going to start a culture there. You've got to have multiple individuals arriving about the same time to have the evidence of cultural flourishing that we see. Individuals cannot exist alone. No, no species has ever existed that is more dependent on other members of its species than humans. We're pathetic. We can't survive. The baby can't survive without parents. I mean, I great, get great joy from writing books, but that's a, a social activity. That's a cultural activity because I do not write books just for myself. I am a leading reason why I write books. But yes, I want other people to read them and to talk to me and be part of a dialogue. And this is, this is an example of the fact that we are not islands, that we, we really do, we are little nodes in a vast network of other individuals. Like, for example, we have this idea, um, and it's an experience I've had myself, is that I go to a country which in a lot of ways is very foreign, like maybe if you're in the Middle East or you're in Southeast Asia. But, you know, you kind of, if you go into a supermarket and you're standing in the refrigerator section, in a lot of ways you could be in any country in the world, right? But I think maybe that's just because a majority of kind of, let's say, um, the countries that I would ever visit or the cultures that I would ever know are, are kind of similar. And I've never experienced a culture that's probably really alien to me, like, like the Pidaha. Well, cultures are similar for two reasons. Uh, because they originated from the same culture, they're historical derivatives of the same culture, or because of cultural sharing and borrowing. Uh, so 
you know, let's say that of the 7,000 languages of the world, let's say half of them are written. I don't know if it's that many, but well, how many times was writing invented in the history of the world? Maybe five or six times. And yet thousands of languages use it. It was invented uh, in China. So it was invented there. It was invented by the Semites, the Phoenicians, the traders that applied the Middle East. It was uh, invented in, in the Americas by this Cherokee chief, Sequoia. It's one of the greatest intellectual accomplishments in the history of the world. Sequoia saw you know, settlers reading. And he thought, what a great idea. So he went home and invented not an alphabet, but a syllabary for the Cherokee, which is a beautiful thing. All the symbols are gorgeous and people learn to read it and write it very quickly. It's still used, invented by, he had an American name too, because an English name, because he was also a silversmith. And, you know, so he was well introduced into American society, but he invented a language that didn't have anything to do with any other language that was written in the world. Um, just off off his head, you know, so that was a, a brilliant thing. So everybody has a way of writing their language. I can go into any language in the world and when, even if it's not written in a few weeks, I can pretty much write it. I can write it actually from the first day I get there because of the international phonetic alphabet. And then eventually I will do an analysis that tells me what the phonemes are, which is different from the phones. But that's all borrowed. That's knowledge that's been shared with others. Refrigeration wasn't invented by every culture that has refrigerators. You know, televisions were not invented by every culture that has televisions. These emerge from specific societies. So a lot of the similarity we see among the peoples of the earth are physical similarity uh, and um, the fact that everybody talks, the fact that everybody wants to live. Um, the fact that if you have a good idea, I will happily use it, you know, but it doesn't go very deep, really. Um, and so Adolf Bastian, this uh, really cool uh, German ethnographer, one of the founders of, of ethnography, and he was the curator of the Museum of Ethnography in Berlin, which is still one of the greatest museums in the world. He had a, he had a, a young graduate assistant, uh, Franz Boas, who studied with him. And one of the big things that that Adolf Bastian pushed was this psychic unity of mankind, which is a wonderfully attractive view for some. I don't know why it's attractive, actually. I, the idea that we all think alike doesn't sound that attractive to me. But, um, but a lot of people really like it, and they take it to mean that I can't be superior to you because, after all, we, we think alike. Well, we don't always think alike. We use the same neurons. We have certain physical limitations that are the same, but we can you know, value things um, very differently. And we can have very different mental lives, you know, whatever that means. And we can have very different perspectives on the world because it's not our biology, but our culture that changes. You know, humans haven't evolved much in the last couple of hundred thousand years biologically. Why is that? Because we depend on culture now. Natural selection weeds out the weak and promotes the strong. And by strong, it only means more likely to have viable offspring. Actually, not more likely, but has more viable offspring. Uh, but medicine, which is a cultural product, kills natural selection. You're allowing the weak to survive. I have glasses. I need those because my eyes are weak. By purely Darwinian principles, nobody should give me glasses. I can either make it or I can't. And if I can't make it, that's good for people that I die. And if I have cancer, why would you take that out of me? Because why would you help me? Because I should die if I have it, because I need to 
get these weaknesses out of the system. This is what Hitler thought. He's consistent with some, you know, bizarre principles and interpretations of uh, natural selection. But the whole purpose of culture is to overcome natural selection, to make us superior beings. So we're not so dependent on our biology. We go beyond our biology. Clothes help us go beyond our biology. We can live in cold weather because culture has enabled us to go beyond our biology. On the other hand, if you live in a place that doesn't make demands on your biology, such as the Amazon, you gotta be able to run and shoot and see and stuff, but you don't have to worry about getting too cold very often and you don't have to worry about getting too hot. There's no surprise that very little technology has originated in the Amazon other than bows and arrows and stuff. It's not because the people are stupider, it's because they they have a great biological environment. You know, humans arose in the Pleistocene and the eras of the great ice ages, which reminds me that we're overdue for one. We should be getting a big ice age again, except maybe global warming will keep that away from us. Yeah, that, that's that's quite thought provoking, actually. The um, the idea that um, uh, our cultural products, like, for example, medicine, is kind of interfering with natural selection. I don't know how to feel about that, actually. <laughs> well, if you were a eugenicist from the past, they had this whole field that was very popular, eugenics. You should be able to test your fetuses in the womb to tell if they have bad genes and kill them off. You know, we still see some of that, you know, you take samples of the amniotic fluid and you tell the mother and father, you know, your child's going to be born with this or that disease and then ask them to make the choice. You're asking them to receive a cultural product and make a biological decision, you know, that, you know, natural selection, you know, should be be able to do all these things, but we've overruled natural selection, not by accident either. Nobody wants to freeze to death in the cold. And and nobody wants to die of hunger. But natural selection should say, if you got yourself in that mess, tough, you know, die. You can die after after you've had a baby anyway, because that's all we produced you for. Evolution's own pur only purpose is to produce children. In some cases, you see difficult to explain things like menopause and women. Why do they have menopause? And we're the only primate species where women don't have offspring until they drop dead. So that's an interesting thing. But, but evolution over, is overcome in many ways. Biological evolution is overcome by uh, cultural products. I mean, in a sense, climate change is a cultural product. And um, that could overcome the millions of years old forces of, of nature that produce the ice ages. You know, it could, it could flood the planet, or it might not. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do see culture conflicting with nature everywhere. And it, it conflicts in the individual as well. In the book, you mentioned um, a few different theories of culture that have preceded, that have preceded yours in Dark Matter. And, and one of those was the Buddhist principle of, of Ataman. And you said, that, you said that some of your ideas are kind of similar. They're kind of parallel to... To, to this idea that um, that human nature is uh, a, a personal nexus, as you put in the book. Yeah. So I, um, when I started writing the book, and uh, you know, I discovered things about other people's thoughts that I didn't, I hadn't been aware of before. So Buddhism has a lot of conclusions that are that resonate with the conclusions of dark matter of the mind. Uh, but so does philosophers, do philosophers like Jesse Prince, who's at New York University. He's written on, you know, very similar kinds of things from a, 
uh, an exclusively philosophical perspective and not based on field work or anthropology, but, but our work does, um, I think, complement each other. So, so Buddhism, you know, you are the sum of your memories, basically, the sum of your experiences. That's what an individual is. And that's pretty much the theory of dark matter. Who am I as a person? I'm, I am the memory, my own memory of all the experiences I've had. So I won't remember all those experiences. They will all have affected me whether I remember them or not, though. And so part of my identity are the things I remember, and part of the, my identity are the things I don't remember. That sounds fairly Freudian, uh, but it, it fits with a lot of other stuff. I mean, I don't really care much for Freud as a scientist. I think psychoanalysis and science is a collocational clash. It's, a, you know, it's an oxymoron. But still, he had a lot of good ideas that, um, that were, some of them were sort of right by coincidence. I mean, he just, well, not by coincidence, but not because of his theory, but he did observe some things. When you see when you see these movies about somebody uploading their personality and their mind to the computer, that's just silly. You might as well try to upload it to a refrigerator. We are the sum total of our bodies. We are bodies and members of cultures. And if you can't upload all of that stuff until a computer pisses itself because it's afraid, it's not going to be able to take your personality. It's not you're not going to have that because you've got to sense your biology. You know, I am partly what makes me afraid and what makes me horny and what makes me um, ambitious. These things are all part of who I am and you can't upload that to a computer. And, you know, in all these years of understanding, of modeling human cognition on computers, no one has solved the so-called semantics problem. Where does meaning come from? That's one reason why computer scientists are very enamored with a lot of Chomsky's work, because he just ignores meaning. But John Searle's example of the Chinese room, where in case somebody doesn't remember that example, you know, let's say you have this robot big enough for a man to be inside the head of it. And and all that man has is a list of instructions. When you get this squiggly mark in through this hole here, and he doesn't know that's the ear on the robot. Uh, when you get this squiggly mark, then you look down this list and you put out this mark out the mouth. Okay, fine. So he gets really good at it. And he can do it almost instantaneously. So he, he doesn't even know that what's coming in the ear is Chinese and what's going out the mouth is English. He's just looking up the symbols. So Searle then asks, does that computer speak Chinese or English? And the answer is no not doing anything like speaking those languages. He's just, you know, running through a bunch of algorithms. There's no understanding because there's no meaning there. It's all form. And nobody solved that problem yet. People make fun of Searle's example and they say it's not really a problem, but it is a profound problem and nobody has responded to it effectively. And where does meaning come from? It comes from culture. It comes, you cannot have meaning apart from culture. So until we have computers that can learn culture and not just pass a Turing test for language, but pass a Turing test for appropriate culture be, cultural behaviors in all environments. We're not going to have meaning and we're not going to have artificial intelligence. There's no, the reason it's called artificial intelligence is because it's not intelligence. It's just artificial intelligence. I mean, there's no, there's no intelligence there. These are just silly things that people say. And that's not the that's not really to belittle the efforts in artificial intelligence. I mean, obviously they're making, I like it if I can tell 
if you know, but you watch Back to the Future Three, which I watched with my kids when it came out, and Michael J. Fox walks into his house as an old man, and he tells the toaster to toast bread, and now we have Siri, and we have all these things that that can do things for us, you know. And so I'm not knocking that, but Siri doesn't speak English. You know, Siri Siri has a lot of good algorithms and can understand some things, and but Siri doesn't speak English. Alexa doesn't speak English or Chinese or any other language. You know, these are just, uh, we're interacting with uh, refrigerators with advanced algorithms. And I'm no more afraid of computers taking over the world than I am of refrigerators taking over the world. But on the other hand, you know, if you allow computers to, to uh, execute algorithms where you don't want the algorithms executed, that could be bad for us, but it doesn't mean that computers have a plan to take over the world. They're just fucking things up. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the most you could say about them, you know, to get the wrong computer in your car and it's going to overheat um, the wrong GPS. You know, the other day, my GPS thought a river was a road and it kept trying to get me to drive into the river. And if I would have just let it, oh, it must know what it's talking about. You know, I just drive into the river, I would be dead. So clearly that was a glitch. And if the car had been able to see the river and understand that's a river, this problem would not have arisen. But of course, cars can't do that because computers can't do that. There's no computer powerful enough to solve all those problems. So I, I don't deny the importance of artificial intelligence or the, or the great in, actual intelligence of all the people who work in this area. I just think that that's part of the difference between technology and science. This sort of leads on to, to, to some stuff that you talk about in, in Dark Matter, because, you know, throughout history, there have been these theories, uh, like, for example, Freud's tripartite mind, Campbell's monomyth, that try to kind of explain human nature or to, to cry, try to create a kind of universal law of, of human nature. But um, I think you, you have a kind of dim view of, of some of these theories. That's right. If you talk about human nature in terms of physiology, I'm with you. Humans have a unique physiology. If you talk about human nature uh, in terms of our propensity to behave in certain ways or to, um, I mean, there's a certain physiological reason for that. But, but when you talk about the psychic unity of mankind in terms of innate ideas, there you lose me entirely. So if you take Joseph Campbell's view of myths, I studied him in college as this great, brilliant uh, pioneer of the universal myth, monomyth, as I call it in the book, and why if you get to the roots of any human society, we'll find the ingredients of the same myth. And, and Carl Jung had a, had a very similar idea but these guys didn't do field research. That's just obvious. I mean, because the second you get out to some Amazonian group and start looking around, you're not going to find those myths unless you make the myths that you're hearing fit into the myths that you brought with you to the field. And this is very often, this, this happens in all, to some degree, it happens in all field research. You bring a theory and you fit the data into the theory. And we can't get away from that. That's just the way humans operate. But I find no evidence whatsoever in Peter Ha for anything that looks remotely like the mono myth. So there was a version of that among Christian missionaries that was brought out by a famous Christian missionary, Don Richardson, who worked in New Guinea. And he had something that was a form of universal myth or idea that he claimed God, not genes, had implanted in, in all human 
beings, and this was the redemptive analogy. And the idea behind that is we all need redemption. And so every, every society in the world, every culture will have a myth or a story about being lost and being found. And as soon as you find that story, you've got a way in for the gospel because God prepared all cultures of the world for the coming of his gospel. Um, and th but that, that, that's not true. That's just silly. You know, so the Pitaha don't have a word for salvation, but I see somebody, let's say, fall into the river that can't swim. Every Pitaha can swim, but forget that. If somebody falls into the river and they can't swim, maybe they're drunk and somebody else has to jump in the water and swim out there and get them and bring them back. I can ask, what did he do? And I'm not going to get he saved his life. I'm going to get he pulled him out of the water, you know. And you say, but why did he pull him out of the water? And then they'll look at you and say, well, because, you know, he was going to die in the water, you know. So they don't have a word for I saved you or anything like that. So I could try to build on something like that as a redemptive analogy or a universal idea, but it's false. And, and Adolf Bastian, who was the founder of, of the psychic unity of mankind idea in modern times, also believed that we would find common stories among all the people of the world. We would find common concepts, common ideas, and, and you find that some linguists are quite enamored by this idea, not just Chomskyans, but one person I had a running debate with for a while, I don't think we debate anymore, I, is Anna Virzbitska in Australia, who, um, who has this natural semantic meta-language theory, which is that all languages have the same concept. So she really doesn't like my work because I claim Peter Ha lacks some concepts that she thinks are universal, but, and yet she's not a fan of universal grammar. So that, you know, I don't know where these concepts would come from if they don't come from the genes. And if you say that they do come from the genes, well, you got to find the genes. So I don't, I don't like these universal kinds of ideas because I see no evidence for them, but also from a theoretical perspective, nobody proposes the mechanism by which they can work. So when Darwin proposed natural selection, the biggest hole in his theory was that he had no mechanism by which it would work. I mean, he talked about how we're selected and we, some people produce more viable offspring than other creatures, but he had no concept of genes. So genetics was out, you know, Gregor Mendel roughly around the same time was doing his experiments that nobody paid much, nobody paid any attention to for about a hundred years. But when, when genetics was discovered, this provided the mechanism for natural selection to work. So people said, Darwin had this great idea, but now we know why it works. And it, it wasn't as great an idea until we understood how it works. Now, of course, we know that natural selection is just one of several forms of evolutionary um, uh, mechanisms, you know, sexual selection is another, bottlenecks as people, you know, certain populations just happen to survive a flood or something like that. That was not because they had better genes, they just were on a higher plateau, you know, and uh, so they lived and they passed on more of their genes. Maybe the best genes were lost in the flood, but these genes are the ones we have now because they're the ones. So there are all sorts of mechanisms for natural selection. But the point is, when you propose a monomyth, a myth that's found around the world, you've got to have a mechanism to tell us why that exists. You know, where did that come from? Evolutionary psychology, for which is, you know, Steve Pinker is a huge proponent of that. Um, 
And that started out at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So, but what's ironic is that there's no evolution in evolutionary biology. There are these stories told about the human past and how modern humans have characteristics that emerged in the Pleistocene for Pleistocene events. And so we're sort of mismatched with our environment. But there are, there are several problems with that view. And one problem with that view is that they have no, I've never seen a mechanism that can explain how these traits are passed along. You know, you can say it's in the genes and we haven't found the genes yet, but then how did they get into the genes? To be able to give a natural selection account of how something entered, you have to know what the population was like at the time, what the environmental pressures were like at the time, how could natural selection have worked and what were the genes that were selected? So this is, this is lacking in, in many of these theories. Uh, in fact, I think that Freud and Jung and uh, Joseph Campbell and people like this are just precursors to evolutionary psychology and nativism of the kind that Chomsky proposes for grammar. And none of this is really, is, is really rooted in biology as it should be. And it all ignores the greatest environmental pressure that humans have now constructed for themselves for the last two million years, which is culture. Culture can affect our phenotypes and our genotypes. The first person to really point this out was James Mark Baldwin in the 19th century, which we now have the Baldwin effect, which is how natural selection can target a cultural change. My favorite example of that is lactase persistence. So we have this enzyme that we're all born with, all human beings, uh, lactase. Lactase enables us to digest the protein lactose in milk. We're mammals. All mammals have to be able to digest lactose, and so we all need lactase. But what happens is that because milk comes from our mamas and, and we only get it when we're babies, lactase shuts off uh, after, after we're weaned. And so lactase uh, persistence is the name given to a few societies in the world in which they have maintained the ability to digest lactose. And if you trace this back, you find that it goes back to about 6,000 years ago to cultural changes, the raising of dairy cattle. And Baldwin identified this. Well, culture can produce changes in our genes. None of these early theorists, Freud never considered culture. I mean, he would have considered how the id and the ego and the superego would have affected culture, but he never would have thought about cultures that could sort of eliminate one of those three or make that theorization relatively irrelevant in the particular culture. Yeah, and I think um, maybe what people don't realize as well is that in evolutionary terms, uh, lactase persistence is so recent uh, that I think even even kind of evolutionary biologists are shocked um, well, were shocked by the discovery, right? That 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 um that genes can be selected in, in such a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, you find a similar effect with Tibetan occupants of high altitudes. They have a different physiology there, and people in Bolivia, you find this among some Quechua and Aymara, that they have um, bigger lungs, they have an, a better ability to process oxygen in the blood. Uh, which enables them to live more successfully at higher altitudes. And that's also uh, fairly, fairly recent, in fact, less than 6,000 years. So, um, you know, on a, as a side issue, you, you would then ask, as Phil Lieberman often does, 
why don't you see the same things in language? If our genes can change in 6,000 years. So if we look at this phenomenon in natural language called prodrop, which is romance languages don't have to have a subject overtly expressed. Uh, French is an exception, but English, you can't say rains, you have to say it rains. But in, in Spanish or Portuguese or any other romance language aside from French, you would just say rains. That phenomenon, and there are some associated syntactic features that have been proposed to go along with it, is about 6,000 years old. It goes back probably to Indo-European. And so you have the two you know, two big families that came out of Indo-European are Germanic, which lacks prodrop, and Romance, which has prodrop. And you could say, that's enough time. We know from lactase persistence for there have been to be, uh, been uh, time enough for there to be a genetic development that makes somebody born in a prodrop language unable to learn a language like English with the subject or somebody in English who's unable to learn a prodrop language. If language is carrying on the genes, you expect the Baldwin effect to be seen in human language. But we see nothing like that in any language. Universal grammar, therefore, predicts, ironically, that not all people can learn all languages. Because if language is in the genes, and we expect mutations by populations when they're subject to different cultural pressures, then we expect that you can find one population that cannot learn the language of another population. That's just straight natural selection by the Baldwin effect. But if on the other hand, you claim that language is not innate and that it's a product of general intelligence and cultural pressures, then you expect all people to be learn, to learn all languages and there should be no bit of evolutionary change for pro-drop versus non-pro-drop because this is not a genetic effect. This is a cultural fact. So the reasoning of nativism is really poor. I mean, it would be a tremendous discovery for Chomsky to find a population that cannot learn the language of another population but is otherwise normal. But we don't find that. In fact, even if you look at disease, uh, and the so-called specific language impairment. It's not specific and it's not linguistic. So it's a bad name for it. You know, we don't have, there's no such thing as specific language impairment until, as Evelina Fedorenko has shown, until after the language has been localized in the brain after acquisition, then you can get damage to those places where it's now found because it's been learned. And then you can get very specific impairments that are linguistic, but nobody's born with that. These are things that happen after acquisition. Yeah, it's amazing, right? And, and, and I was also recently really surprised to, to learn that um, that language doesn't really know which side of the brain it's going to be on at the beginning. Sometimes it's on the left, sometimes it's on the right, and then it kind of, you know, it decides over time. It's uh, an incredible thing. Yeah, it fills out these, if, if Evelina is right, it fills out these networks that are found on, you know, in different parts of the brain. So, so we, we're still very ignorant about where language is in the brain and how, how the body and the brain produce language. Also, you're going to find language in the brain depending on how you define it. So if you, find, if you define language as, uh, as a form of syntax, it's not found prominently in the brain because Evelina has shown that the most, the most important thing for things to be stored in the brain is meaning you know, which is what Charles Peirce would have agreed with. On the other hand, gestures, are they part of language and where are they found? And facial expressions, are they part of language and where are they found? And how do the two link up? Where does intonation come from and where is that found? 
these things are so complicated and, and culture plays a large role in all of them. So, so the simplistic idea that has been attractive to researchers throughout the last couple of hundred years is that the brain is special. This is what makes it so anybody can look at a chimpanzee and say, oh, like us, they have, you know, their uh, catarines, which means that their nose points downward. They have two arms. They have a brain that's organized sort of like ours, but with far, far fewer neurons and far less space. It, what must be the difference between us and chimpanzees and other creatures is our brain. So we want to focus on the brain. I can understand that. You know, I mean, obviously the brain is extremely interesting. Obama, you know, launched a brain project with extra funding for understanding the human brain. This really misses the point of the fact that the brain is built into a body. And even if you, even if you ignore that, even if you ignore the central thesis of dark matter of the mind, that the brain is not what learns, that the individual learns. The idea that you're gonna find in the brain the same ideas, no matter where that brain is found, what culture it's found in anywhere in the world, that they're gonna have the same core ideas, this really stretches the imagination, right? I mean, why would a pidaha have any not anything in common uh, conceptually with, with somebody from another culture. I mean, that is not culturally or not physiologically related. So, so yes, everybody needs to eat. So everybody has to have strategies for finding food. Everybody needs to communicate because we're social creatures. So you're going to find language in every group. Everybody needs shelter because we're hairless bipeds with very little fat layer when we're healthy. And so they need to have shelter. So all of these things are gonna produce similarities, but those similarities are really, uh, in my opinion, those are superficial similarities. And the profound differences are found only by careful uh, cultural examination and, and understanding. Another kind of foundational theory that, that you talk about a lot in the book is Kenneth Pike's um, theory of etic versus emic. Yes. Um, and I know that's kind of central to to, to some of your ideas in the book. Could, could you just explain a little bit more about, about what that is? Yes. So Ken Pike, who was actually my first linguistics teacher um, back in the 70s, was a pioneer in the study of phonetics and phonemics. And phonetics is the physical properties of sounds. It's how a linguist who doesn't speak the language would write the sounds down and understand the sounds. Phonemics is the study of how native speakers perceive their sounds. So you take um, an aspirated P at the beginning of a syllable in English, such as paper versus spa. So the P in spa is not aspirated. The P in paper is aspirated, the first P. But most native speakers of English don't hear that. They just think of them both as the same sound. And so to reflect that, the analysis of English writes them as the same sound because we write them not for what they are physically, but for how they're perceived by native speakers, at least how they were perceived at the time that the language was written. So we, we spell laugh, L-A-U-G-H, because it used to be pronounced lauch but now it's laugh, so the, the spelling is out of sync with the pronunciation. But So the physical study of sounds are called phonetics, and this mental study of sounds is called phonemics, and Pike just took the last part off of each of those words and said, edics is the perspective of the outsider, emic is the perspective of the insider. So that a baby, you can think of a baby 
as born as, as a partial outsider into a culture, not a complete outsider because they were learning in the womb. But when they're born, their task is to go from the etic perspective to the emic perspective. They're supposed to go, they have to go from outsider to insider. And they're given a lot of help by their mothers to do that and other people in the society in which they're born. So etic is, is what a culture looks to us from the, like from the outside and emic is what it looks like from the inside. So the role of the anthropologist is not simply to give us an etic description of a culture. It's to try to give us an emic understanding of that culture. And anthropologists of different types have, have worked towards this. But this is one of the things that means that, you know, we can see the same thing in two different cultures, but emically, you know, so etically they're the same, but emically they could be very, very different, you know. So we see people uh, lose their temper. That's an etic fact. People well, we don't know if it's losing their temper. We see people yell. That's an etic fact. The emic fact for, for in some cultures, that yelling is anger. In, in other cultures, it's just excitement. So do you say that the people who, you've got two cultures, they both yell, they're both always angry, or one is much more excited and the other is angry, or, or are there other reasons? So the behavior itself doesn't tell you what its analysis is. It doesn't tell you how it's perceived by native speakers. We see this all the time when somebody's learning another language. They learn that there's a typical gesture of that culture. They learn that there's a particular sound, you know, a raspberry or something like that. Uh, or there's a word, you know, that means something really interesting culturally, but then they don't know how to use it. They've made the etic observation that these things exist, but until they use it inappropriately, they won't know how to use it appropriately. So you have to, to get to reach an emic understanding of a language or a culture, you have to make mistakes. You have to put yourself out there and learn by doing, just like a child does, and and by being corrected. And this business that children don't learn their language through negative uh, data is is largely wrong. And it's been shown more and more studies show that negative input is vital to the learning process. And it certainly is for, for somebody learning a second language. So this is something that, you know, Plato didn't imagine where Aristotle did. He talked about convention. He talked about word meaning words meaning what they mean because of convention. Whereas for Plato, words meant what they meant because they come from heaven and that's what they mean. This reminds me of, of, a, of, a, of a story that, that actually had a, a big impact on me from, from Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. Uh, and I think in the story you were, you were standing in the river with some Peter Hahn and you were talking to them um, about someone who committed suicide, right? And it, for you, it was kind of a serious thing that you were talking to them about. And they started laughing. They thought it was hilarious and they couldn't understand, you know, and to me that... I mean, that's such a, a massive chasm between two cultures, right? Yes, um, because to them, suicide is the most bizarre concept they've ever heard of. I mean, they, why would you kill yourself? Life is short enough, you know. So depression and this sort of thing, these aren't things they have time for. So you can take poverty. You know, a lot of people who are poor don't have the psychological impairments of wealthy people because they don't have time for it. Now you could say, oh, they do, they just can't manifest it. Well, maybe that's true, but you're just saying that I have no evidence, but they have to be the same. Among the Pinaha, they, there may be depression, but I never see it. I mean, it's, it's, 
you can sometimes find people that are sad because they miss someone that died, but that's not clinical depression. And it doesn't bring them to think about suicide, which is the farthest thing from their minds. And so, yes, I told him the story of my stepmother committed, committing suicide because that was going to lead into why I committed my life to Jesus. And they just started laughing because I just told them that, you know, we're like another species or something. I mean, we just, this incomprehensible, bizarre behavior that we did. And, and I'm not saying that one is right and one is wrong. You have to fit in the cultural values. The cultures are ranked values. And if you're going to live in a certain society, you've got to follow the rules of that society. But you'll be amazed at how radically different societies can be and thoughts can be and values can be. That's one re thing I do like very much about Adolf Bastian. And that is, he said that all of these ideas, which he thought were right, had to be tested or at least had to be investigated by fieldwork. And his assistant at the time, Franz Boas, thought that was a great idea. So he went to the U.S. to do fieldwork, and he never returned. And, and he, he didn't do that much fieldwork, Boas, actually. But his students did a lot of fieldwork. It was really amazing to me. When I look at Levi Strauss and Boas, these guys who are the examples of anthropological field research, they didn't do much. They did a few weeks, and that's it. You know, if you, if you sum up all Boaz's time, it's just a couple of months. Or all of Levi Strauss's time in Brazil, it's just a couple of months. The, the thing that made Levi Strauss famous is that he was a, an amazingly good writer. And he wrote up stuff that made you feel like you were there. So when I was writing Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, I would look at very frequently at, at uh, Sad Tropics, Tristes Tropiques by... Levi Strauss, and I would say, crap, I'm never going to produce anything like this. this is just crazy good writing. This is, and he was making fun of travel writing in the introduction to that book, He's, how silly it was, you know, and yet he writes the best travel book probably ever written in, you know, in modern times. And he came up with really good ideas. I think they're all wrong. I mean, I'm pretty much all wrong. He got a whole bunch of research happening um, because he went to Roman Jakobsen, he took a class from Roman Jakobson, who was the teacher of uh, Morris Halley and, and influenced Chomsky as well. And Roman Jakobson was starting to teach the ideas of Peirce uh, because he had discovered Peirce. And when Roman Jakobson was talking about linguistics and phonemics and the sign, Levi Strauss was fascinated and built basically a model of anthropology that followed linguistics, and this all became known as structuralism, because we're looking at the form of language, now the form of myths and these things. But most of that's wrong. I mean, as far as I can tell, there's these, these mythic divisions that uh, Levi Strauss tried to draw are really, and some of the conclusions from kinship that he drew are really no more universally valid than Joseph Campbell's work on myth myths found around the world. But they're brilliant, and they inspire generations of people. And I think the same thing of Chomsky. I think that his, you know, there's, it's almost totally the wrong way to go about looking at stuff. It doesn't mean they haven't found anything. It just means that you've got this huge panorama in front of you, and you've decided to study this whole plant, and not even in relation to other plants. You know, you, you, you not only just going to look at this plant, but you don't care about other plants of the same species. A lot of people would say that's a totally incorrect characterization. But I do think that theories are big gambles. Freud made a marvelous gamble, and he turned out to be completely wrong. Jung made a big gamble. He's almost totally wrong. B.F. Skinner took behaviorism and radicalized it to a point that many behaviorists 
today, they don't even see that Skinner was doing the same thing. And he sort of brought behaviorism into discredit because he, he developed such a radical model and it failed so spectacularly, according to some people. So some of the biggest ideas we have are just total failures uh, in, in the social sciences. In physics and in biology, you know, Lamarck proposed a view of evolution that was influential but totally wrong. Darwin proposed the best theory of evolution anybody had ever come up with or has ever come up with, but there was, he had, he didn't understand, there was no mechanism by which it could work, so he was lacking a major component. So we, we, we throw these ideas out there, and Isaac Newton, you know, one of the greatest geniuses in the history of the world who came up with this theory of, of gravity and, and these things, which Einstein showed was, in fact, wrong. You know, will Einstein be shown to be wrong? And some, everybody turns out to be wrong in some respects, some less, some more. Uh, but the bold ideas that advance us and get thought going are out there. And we don't ask, we want to test it. It's intriguing. We want to test it. So this, this is in the dark matter of, of all of us in a particular society, uh, this desire to test ideas. And, and for hunter-gatherers, the idea, the testing of ideas is much simpler. You know, you say, I saw an enormous alligator at this bend of the river. Well, we get in the canoe and we'll go down there and see. Is it there? Is there any evidence that it was there? Because that uh, survival depends on that. So I really do think that's where science originated with Homo erectus and this ability to, to predict the behavior of animals and other humans and to try to, to do things culturally that um, we couldn't have done uh, simply based on our physiology. Well, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some, some of the stuff in the book, um, which shows how culture can affect cognition and also um, culture can affect language. And, you know, one of the, one of the examples in the book is um, how basically your culture can, in a, in a simplified way, can basically make you blind to certain aspects of the actual visual world. So, for example, there's some ex the example of um, the Peter Hunt and the blindness to, to photographs. My former wife, Karen, liked to take in large collections of photographs that we had taken of the Peter Hunt. And I would also take in National Geographic magazines because they like to see other things and they, they like to hear about other societies. But watching them with the photographs of their own people, people that were around them literally right now in the environment, they would hold the picture upside down, they would uh, turn it around and they would rotate it and then they would say something and I would say, that's so-and-so. And they would look at it, look at it and look at it and finally one of them says, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. You know, it was just like an optical illusion of some kind. They really couldn't get much information from a two-dimensional uh, image and so, I mentioned this to a few people like uh, Ted Gibson, who was planning to come down with um, another, uh, with a student of his who's now a professor of psychology at Stanford, uh, Mike Frank. They were going to come down. And so they mentioned this to a couple of other students who were at Stanford and MIT who were working on perception. So they designed an experiment for us to test my ideas. You know, if he's right, that they really can't, maybe he's wrong. Maybe they can see the photo very clearly, but they're just, something else is bothering them that he's not identified. So we did a bunch of experiments based on their images that they sent, and they dig, 
they found images of pitaha and images of animals in that environment in that particular part of the jungle and they had full color images and then they degraded them in different ways. Well, you have to degrade a picture a great deal before, let's say, somebody from California can't recognize it anymore. But for the pitaha, if they recognized a full color picture of a jaguar, they grade that ever so slightly and they can't recognize it anymore. And so we did a series of experiments, and these were published in uh, PLOS One, I think it was the journal that we, we all published them in. So I put some of this, I discussed this research in the book. Why can't they recognize two-dimensional spaces? Are they stupid? Are their eyes different than our eyes? And the answer is no. The average American, for example, is every European is exposed to images from birth, two-dimensional images, whereas the Pinaha, apart from a few reflections maybe in the water, they don't see two-dimensional images. Everything is three-dimensional. And so it's not surprising that they haven't trained their eyes and their brain uh, to see, to recognize two-dimensional objects. So this is not this is, we're capable, we're, all humans are capable of it, but the immediate recognition of two-dimensional uh, images is not innate. That's learned by cultural knowledge structures. Well, th there was something, there was something else in the book um, kind of related to this, which, which for me really came out of left field, was when you started to talk about business culture and how a lot of companies, they think that they are um, you know, developing business culture when really, because of their shallow understanding of what culture is, normally they're only developing one very specific thing, which which probably doesn't benefit them at all. Yeah, I mean, this is a funny thing about businesses. Culture is a buzzword. And I teach a course called Cultures of Business, in which I attack this head on. But let's say that we want to eliminate the manager, the role of the manager. And so we're going to organize people into work groups and stuff like this. And so we're all equal here. You know, I just get paid a hundred times more than you. But other than that, we're all equal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, your word is as good as mine. And what I point out in the book is that that's very superficial. That's not a cultural change. That's a form change. The real deep culture is that the owner and founder of the company will fire your ass if you're not producing good. Uh, it doesn't matter what team you belong to and how nice you are and you're both equals. If you're not producing money-making ideas, you're out of there. So when businesses talk about culture, they're not understanding it in any profound way. And the other thing you can see is that when you interview people of a culture, whether it's from business or just everyday life, they're going to give you a number of answers. And those answers are valid in some sense. You've got to take those answers, but you watch their behavior. So you ask a pastor, is prostitution wrong? And they're going to say, yes, it is wrong. Most pastors will say that. And, um, is it okay to visit prostitutes? No, that's really wrong. But then you find pastors who do that. They visit prostitutes. You, this is a big scandal because they're the actions don't match the words. And that's where we often find it. Uh, we find it in every realm of human behavior where our actions don't match our words. At the beginning of my annual conference on linguistics in Brazil, and uh, it was about a construction in Portuguese. Um, and afterwards, a well-known Brazilian linguist stood up and said, Nobody talks like that. You're talking about something that, and then he uses that same construction in his talk when he's saying that nobody talks like that, and everybody starts laughing. And he takes a while, and then he realizes he just said that, and he just sits down. And he, he, was, he was a good-natured guy, so he said, okay, so I use that too. You're right. Uh, you know, so he admitted it. He was a really, really nice guy, but, it, but it's still embarrassing. So he denied that he did what he does. 
And that's one reason that as anthropologists, we can't just work on questionnaires. So with linguists, we can't just work on grammaticality judgments. What do people actually say? This is why corpus linguistics is so important. They're looking at what people actually say, not simply, do you think this is grammatical or ungrammatical? Two, uh, two concepts which I find to be fairly irrelevant in language study, whether something's grammatical or ungrammatical, because one thing we do as members of societies is if I hear a sentence, I get meaning out of it. That's my job. My job as a hearer is to get meaning out of whatever you say. So you might say it differently than I would say it, but I'm still going to get meaning out of it. Um, even if you utter a Spanish phrase or a French phrase, and I don't understand it as a monolingual English speaker, uh, I'm going to try to get some meaning out of why did he say it that way? Why did he say it? And, you know, so when, when we're trying to discover what it is that people really value and what their knowledge structures are. Questionnaires can give us information, but it's only one source of information. We have to get out there and do fieldwork. And without, fieldwork is the laboratory of the, of the behavioral scientists. You know, you can, you can do experiments in the lab and a lot of people do, and those are valid. I'm not knocking those, but, but for me and the kind of science that I do, my laboratory is the field. When I'm denied access to the field, it's like locking me out of my laboratory because that's what I do. Historians, you know, we have to, I have to do field work on purse. You know, I've got to go, even though I'm writing a biography, I have to go to where he was. I have, I want to walk the streets where he walked. I want to see the home that he lived in. I want to, I want to get an idea of how far he lived from his first professor because they walked to school together. And, and so that's a form of field work, but a lot of research on the mind is, is really not based on fieldwork. You know, we're trying to say what humans with a capital H do, but we've only looked at one sort of human within a, you know, within a hundred mile radius. Yeah, um, I mean, I totally agree. Only, <laughs> I agree only from experience. You know, not not from any theoretical framework, but but as you say. Um, language and communication is always just about searching for meaning and. Um, and, and I think the other thing is that, you know, gramma what's grammatical and ungrammatical can change so quickly. Uh, you know, like an example that I always think about is when people say my bad. Um, and I remember when, when I think it was, it probably came from like uh, a film. I think it was started in like probably in California, like surfing culture, you know, people say my bad, you know. But now every, I even hear second language learners saying my bad. Now... 30 years ago, that would not have been neither grammatical nor acceptable. Right. And you can say, uh, he's a great guy, not. Um, <laughs> that not. That's a very common construction now. I mean, this is one of the things that Adele Goldberg's construction grammar gets, but it's wider than that, actually. You know, so like a popular word when I was a teenager, again, from California, um, was bitchin'. Wow, that is bitchin', man. And I used to use that word all the time, and my uncle would get so disgusted by it, he would leave, and I would ask my aunt, I said, why is, why is my uncle seeming so upset? She said, he cannot stand that word, and he wants to tell you to stop, but he doesn't feel like he should tell you to stop. And I, I say, oh, there's a, you know, if I were going to say it today, he's focused on the core of that word, which is bitch, which never even occurred to me as I used it. It, because I just learned the word apart from any etymology. It didn't occur to me that it could possibly be related to bitch. Uh, it was just bitching. That was a separate word, you know. I mean, it had come into my vocabulary and taken on a totally different value than it had taken 
with with my uncle and who cussed all the time. I mean, he, you know, he said words that were legitimately perceived at that time to be bad cuss words, but he didn't use them in the living room. You know, he used them when he was standing out by his truck talking to his friends. So we learned that, you know, um, fuck is a bad word in one context and it's okay to use it in another context. One of the things that linguists do actually is to look at the contextual factors that contribute to acceptability. Uh, not all linguists do this, but some linguists do that. What are the cultural factors that lead to acceptability? So there you have an entire field called uh, anthropological linguistics, a slightly different perspective is linguistic anthropology. This field of study really doesn't have so much of a place in modern linguistics departments. It used to be what linguistics was, but nowadays it's uh, sort of marginalized, and you'll find an anthropological linguist or a linguistic anthropologist in departments of anthropology, most likely. And when I gave a, I gave a a colloquium at the uh, University of Miami's Department of Anthropology, and my son introduced me, and he said, uh, my father is an anthropological linguist, and I'm a linguistic anthropologist, so obviously we have nothing in common, uh, and he's never influenced me in the slightest. Uh, <laughs> our work is not much in common. I mean, his work is so different than mine, but one of the things that we both look at is external factors that affect language, factors that are not language that affect language. And in my case, it's culture. And in his case, it is environmental factors that affect the speech apparatus um, and, and perception. This is all dark matter that we're not aware of. The greatest things to find out about an individual are the things that control his daily behavior without him knowing it. That's what, that was Freud's great insight, to look at the unconscious. So I'm also concerned about the unconscious. Chomsky's concerned about the unconscious. What is the source of the unconscious? For Freud, it's not clear what the source was because it, it, it's not culture because it was found universally and I don't think he ever claimed it was genetics. And for um, Chomsky, the source of the unconscious is largely genetic, at least when it comes to grammar. Why do we produce the sentences we do? Because we've learned a grammar that was given to us in part by our genes. And my view is that it's pretty much all cultural. Um, and growing up in a certain society, we, we simply observe, you know, like a pitaha, you don't have to tell a little boy how to make a bow and arrow. They have gotten a little bit of instruction from their, from their father, and that's crucial. You can't skip that link. So there's a little bit of instruction there, but most of it is observation. And the idea of how to use a bow and arrow, that's doing. That's just out there doing. A pitaha... You know, if, if I ask a Pitaha guy, how do I how do I shoot that animal with a bow and arrow? He says, well, you point at it and shoot it, you know. Well, true enough, true enough, uh, but I can't do it. I can't hit it. And I used to put up targets and stuff to see how accurate the Pitaha were, and they found no purpose in this at all. But, you know, so I put up a box maybe 50 feet away, and I said, shoot that with your arrow. He said, what, the box? Yeah, the box. He doesn't even look at it. He just shoots it. So then I move it back a ways. And then I put a, a plastic mustard bottle on top. And there's a yellow with a red tip. And I say, shoot the yellow, you know, not in color, but, you know, shoot the, shoot the plastic. He shoots it, no problem. And then I move it back farther and I say, shoot the little thing that looks like blood right on top of that plastic thing. That he had to aim for. And he shot it through, he shot the tip. And it didn't stick in the tip because the arrow was too big, but I went and got it. And there was a groove right through the tip 
So he just shot it, you know, right, right where I told him to shoot it, right in the top. So he didn't miss. I couldn't have, I could have hit the box. I could have hit the box when it was that close. I could have hit the box. I might have been able to hit the yellow mustard plastic thing, but I never in a million years would have hit that red tip. But every peat and hot does that. It's just, and how do you do it and how do you explain it? You know, children learn it by doing it. And so um, this is part of their dark matter, this, this ability to shoot arrows accurately. But also it's a part of their dark matter to understand the jungle without having to explain it to each other. You know, I mean, um, I'm not denigrating the role of language. Language is crucial. And, and in the work that I've done with Larry Barham, one of our evidences for language among Homo erectus is the fact that erectus had to have used language to explain how some of these tools were made. Some of them are simply too complicated to have learned by mere observation. But a lot of it was learned by observation, and the use of it was learned by observation. But, you know, so I was looking at a Neanderthal toolkit that they had in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Liverpool, and there were lots and lots, dozens of different tools that Neanderthals used. And I said, yeah, so I I would imagine that when the Neanderthal father told the Neanderthal kid to go get a tool, he had a name for it. You know, he didn't just grunt, you know, he, he told him to go get it. You know, it's like I used to be my dad's assistant. You know, he would say, get me the seven eight socket. I, I had to look every one of them to see which seven eights because I had no experience. He'd just walk over and pick it up. He knows what the seven eights is compared to the, you know, the three eights. And these are things we acquire with that nobody could teach him. His father didn't give him a test. My grandfather did not give my father a test, making him choose repeatedly seven eights over three eights. Maybe people who, who read the book as they, as they get towards the end of the book, and um, maybe they might feel like kind of hope has been taken away, right? Because if there's no such thing as, as a kind of uh, a human nature, then then it's kind of like well we're just pieces of meat right we're just this pieces of meat which which you know for some people well you know maybe they view that as a fact but for others it's kind of you know it's like well what's the point right but in in the very final part of the book you say we are the living creatures possessing the greatest degree of free will in the known universe this is our evolutionary legacy and our greatest hope as a species and and I'm sort of wondering, like, what's the, what, what's, what's the upside? Not that there, of course, has to be an upside, but, you know, what's the upside of looking at culture through, through this, this lens? Well, and let me say about free will that I, I never meant to imply that it is totally free because we're, we're controlled by culture and the dark matter of our mind and all these, and, and environment, um, the limits of our memory and the limits of our knowledge. But what is the upside? It's understanding ourselves. I'm not outwriting. It's not a. It's not a psychological self-help book. It is a book of science on how, how to understand ourselves. And we are human beings. Some people, you know, Al, um, Camus, one of my favorite writers, said that the greatest philosophical problem, is um, the problem, of suicide because. Why don't we all commit suicide knowing what we know about life? Why does anybody choose to live a full life? And uh, he said, this is a profound problem. We've got to answer this problem. William James discussed this a lot. There's a great uh, new book by uh, John Keg, who writes these short, among other things, he writes these short, really 
pithy, insightful books on American philosophy. And this new book is How William James Can Save Your Life or something like that. And he, William James, James struggled with depression for most of his life, even though he was, by all external signs, very successful. Anthony Bourdain, who was one of my favorite television personalities, who was, uh, in my opinion, a great anthropologist, not just a foodie. He was a great anthropologist decided at some point that, uh, you know, for physiological, I don't know, you know, I don't, I'm not doing any analysis, but he figured that traveling the world, being famous, eating all the great food and drinking all the great wine and seeing all the wonderful, beautiful people, you know, if that's all there is, screw it. And he committed suicide. Charles Sanders Peirce considered suicide only because his ideas were being rejected and nobody was, he wasn't getting any money, but not because he felt unworthy or he felt, though people have different things that, that bother them, but there's not going to be any God to pull, pull you out of that, in my view. Uh, there's no uh, psychological uh, silver bullet to kill all the depression. Life is tough. Uh, you got to get on with it and soon you're going to die. You know, as my son puts it, yeah, we just get sicker and sicker and then we die. Uh, so, you know, you may go by COVID, you may go in a car wreck, you may die of something else. I, as I tell my students, if we live long enough, all of us would die from cancer because cancer is the breakdown of our DNA and our DNA is always breaking down. So, you know, we don't know of any way to make humans live forever. And I don't, at this point, why would I want to live forever? You know, I mean, Queen got that right. Eddie Merc Freddie Mercury got that right. You know, who wants to live forever? I don't, I don't find a great need for hope. I love, I love people. And that is, um, I feel great satisfaction in what I do, educating and writing um, and learning things. Um, you know, some scientists think that life is worth living because a hundred years after they're dead, people will be reading what they wrote. Well, maybe they won't, you know, I mean, it may be that when you die, that's the end of it. You see scientists who fall from grace for sexual harassment or racist comments, and all the work that they did is sort of, now it's down the toilet. We live for the moment, and, and we do our very best to do our very best. And that's really all there is of, in my perspective and the theory I've developed in Dark Matter of the Mind. There's no great hope. Uh, there's just today and, and living... Um, a good life by your own dark matter. And, and, and in fact, I, I wonder if, if maybe um, that's something you learned from the Pitaha about living in the moment. Yeah, most of the things I know that are of value, I learned from the Pitaha. Most of the things that I know are bullshit, I learned from religion. So it is, uh, yeah, I learned a great deal from them and I will never cease to be grateful for the opportunity I had to spend almost, you know, about 108 months living in the village or with speakers outside the village. I lived in the village for about eight full years and I lived in another year with speakers, another full year with speakers outside the village working. So over the past, um, from 1977 until 2009, which is my last time there, 32 years, I had nine years of those 32 with those people. And um, they changed my life. I don't think I made a single I don't think I've had a single lasting effect with them, although they like me and they will sometimes send me little videos through my ex-wife, but they have profoundly and forever changed my life, uh, all for the better as far as I can tell.